I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything, yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like, how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that (laughs) then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's, it's so real to this day. I, I I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? (laughs) We did it guys. The one that came out of nowhere. It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Hello, my name is Demetrius, and you are listening to Spaces Podcast Express. Thank you for coming back, everybody. Jason and I had to part ways after our last episode. Just kidding. He had a fire drill, uh, so he is not able to attend today. But we have a guest that is uh, has joined us to talk a little bit about what he's up to. He is the co-founder and head of operations for the Brooklyn Home Company, residential and hospitality development firm based in Brooklyn, New York. He's been a real estate developer in Brooklyn for more than 15 years in partnership with his sister, brother-in-law, and cousin. So they have a family-run business. They're currently working on more than 100,000 square feet of residential real estate in Brooklyn, spread over five unique neighborhoods. And in 2020, they will open the Brooklyn Home Design Company, a for-hire interior design firm operating in New York City, Jackson, Wyoming, and the Hamptons. Please help me welcome Bill Callio. Thank you for joining me, Bill. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Great to get you on board. You want to just jump in and, and tell us a little bit more about you and the the Brooklyn Home Company uh, that may not have been covered in your bio? Sure. So um, I moved to Brooklyn in 2003 after getting a master's degree in acting from Southern Methodist University. And, uh, you know, they say with actors that if you find something else that you like equally to acting, you will gravitate towards it very quickly because acting is such a very difficult trade to be in. 
And I was uh, sort of an off-Broadway actor, was doing a lot of regional theater, traveling around the country doing theater. And I started looking at real estate in Brooklyn, New York in 2003, 2004, when Brooklyn was really going through a transformation. Brooklyn was sort of an afterthought when it came to residential homes. There was a lot of old brownstones that hadn't been renovated in 60, 70 years. And a lot of people saw the benefits of being closer to Manhattan, being closer to urban centers. There were some really good schools in Brooklyn that everybody really liked and wanted to be in those school districts because the cost of private schools are very expensive. And I was an out of work actor. I'd work six months a year and then six months I'd sort of twiddle my thumbs and, you know, take odd jobs. And I started becoming obsessed with real estate. And my first project was a two family home. I lived in one of the apartments and rented the other and did a, a very small renovation where I basically ran to Home Depot every day and picked up supplies for some handy people that I met. And I would have, I basically was a project manager for a project where I knew nothing about construction and learned a lot, learned an absolute ton about the way to build. And, you know, I was sort of lucky that I got in to Brooklyn at that time period where things were much more affordable. And then from 2004 till now, just to give you a sense of what happened to real estate pricing for condominiums. We started underwriting condominiums in Brooklyn in 2004 for $600 per square foot. So, uh, you know, a thousand square foot apartment would be $600,000. Now we're underwriting those same apartments for about thirteen dollars or $1,400 a square foot. Oh my God. So I rode that from 2003 until now. Now, Brooklyn in the last two or three years, it's really three years, has plateaued we haven't really eclipsed in prime brownstone Brooklyn when I'm talking about condo inventory, $1,400 a foot. Some other areas like Brooklyn Heights and Dumbo have done very well. They're, some of them are up to $2,500, $2,600 a foot. But in my zone, small scale residential, three, four, five, six, seven condominiums, it's about $1,300, $1,400 a square foot. So it, it's been a remarkable run. It's been very exciting. You know, I made a lot of mistakes along the way. You know, it's hard to build. It's hard to be an efficient builder and to have great design and to have good subcontractors and good architects and know how to cut through the red tape of New York City bureaucracy and the rest. And over these years, I luckily had a market that was appreciating and I could learn along the way. You know, if I missed a deadline, oh man, I didn't finish that building. It took an extra six months. Oh, lucky me, the market has appreciated 3% in that six months. I'm actually going to be just fine. Yeah. <laughs> but unfortunately, I can't do that anymore. Brooklyn is finally plateaued. I have to be sharp. Now I know what I'm doing. I got to keep costs tight. I got to keep my timeline tight. Or, you know, you just don't make money as a developer you know, and you can't pay your team. Do you think you were watching something in particular or it just happened to be luck that you jumped in right at the, the right time? I think it was right place, right time. I just happened to be living there. I happened to look around and see what was happening. I was just very intrigued by the environment. You know, when I was 16 years old, uh, I had a few thousand dollars 
and I wanted to buy a car. And I, it was my first research project on buying something sort of large scale. And I scanned the classifieds for used cars and studied consumer reports for used cars and learned which car would be the best value and the best fit for me. And I feel like my real estate education was like my used car search when I was 16, except on a more massive scale. I just sort of looked at the environment I learned everything that I could about that environment and then said, I think I can become an expert in this. I think I can know as much as possible so that I can make the right investments and buy the right buildings and turn them over the right way. You're working in sort of the luxury market, right? Yes, I would call it the luxury market. I mean, when you historically compare it to Manhattan, Brooklyn pricing is probably half per square foot of Manhattan. So people in Manhattan aren't thinking, oh, it's Brooklyn luxury. They're thinking, oh, I'm going to go get a value. But overall, we're sort of at the top of the market, I would say. Our finishes and our fit are are something that people aspire to, I would say, in Brooklyn. Now, you mentioned how Brooklyn has st- was going through this transformation. And same thing here in California. It seems to be Everything that comes out is all luxury, uh, luxury apartments and luxury condos, um, or the, the vast majority of it. The answer is probably pretty straightforward, and I would guess. But in your opinion, what do you think is driving that doubling down in the building industry of the luxury market? Well, here's a little secret. It's not much more expensive to build a luxury condominium as it is to build an affordable condominium. The costs are the costs. The structure and the foundation and the HVAC is what is expensive. They look the same in both buildings. So luxury is almost like more of a marketing tool. For example, I'm going to upgrade from a Kohler to a Waterworks My bottom line isn't going to be that much higher, but the profile is going to be higher for the consumer. The fit and finish will feel better, but building a brand new affordable building in a brand new high-end luxury condominium building, the spread isn't that much different. That's fascinating. Yeah. It's really, I think it's really about location. It's where people want to be. Mm -hmm. I'm willing to pay a premium for land in good school districts, where I know that families will want to gather around and buy in that building because they're going to be paying no private school tuition. And so there's a real premium that they see in that. It's about being in those good neighborhoods. That's where I really pay an increased cost and sort of get into the quote unquote luxury category from my perspective. That's the luxury not paying for private school in New York City. Do you think schools and the school system drives a lot of that attention or is it something else? It is. It's, you know what it is? It's, it's a very simple thing. It's the leadership at the elementary schools here. Hmm. Schools that have great leaders draw parents that want to be in that school. And those, those principals hire good teachers that don't want to leave that stay there and develop a system that these kids really learn and grow and prosper. So I'm actually looking for the next great principal. Where did that vice principal from that great school in Brooklyn move to? 
wherever that teacher went, I'm going to start looking for land around that area. I'm going to start looking for buildings because that is going to turn into a great school. So it's not just about buying land and being a real estate developer and saying, oh, I think I could get 1400 a foot. It's also looking for new areas where new great teachers and new great principals are going. That is so fascinating. I don't think I've ever heard anyone really make that connection when it comes to real estate uh, in that way. But that yeah. that is a great thing to to keep an eye out for and for communities to keep an eye out for. Are you hearing or seeing the political side sort of approach developers? Say they get their school system in order and then they approach developers and they're telling them, you know, we have a good school system. We're trying to upgrade this area. What would you think about coming to build here? Or is it just the developer uh, scoping that scene out and figuring it out? I think there's developers that play that where they go to politicians and ask for, you know, special zoning and they'll build special buildings that include mandatory inclusionary housing. It's not my business, not because I don't like it. I think that stuff is very important, but I'm a for sale condominium and townhouse developer. So I don't benefit from the tax breaks that an affordable housing developer gets and for the upzoning they get. It's easiest for me to just buy a building as of right. I go to the building department, I pull a permit, I maximize the square footage of that building, I finish it in 12 months, and then I sell it as quickly as I possibly can. Yeah. So I don't I don't interact a ton with with government besides the building department because I'm doing everything just sort of as of right. Gotcha. Yeah, it's a very big difference between a family builder and a, a public builder. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Now, I want to kind of talk about what you're working on now. Uh, we talked a little bit in your bio, but what do you have going on right now? Sure. Uh, the most important note to make is that, you know, we've always been a traditional home builder. We've uh, built with great integrity great artistic integrity, I would say. Uh, we've got really talented designers and people really follow our design and like our design. And it's been our hallmark. But we're sort of turning over a new leaf here where we're integrating passive house principles in the homes that we sell. A passive house home is a home that is super insulated. It's got double the insulation of a typical home and use triple pane windows in that home so that you can lower your heating and cooling costs and lower your carbon footprint. It also creates the best indoor air environment for a residential home. And the reason for that is when you have a tight envelope and lots of insulation, you have to add mechanical ventilation inside, a system called an ERV system. And what that does is it brings in filtered fresh air from the outside and it extracts the stale air. So the most important thing you can do for yourself, I think, is breathe good quality air and extract the air when your kid sneezes down the hallway. Mm-hmm. That, that air gets extracted and the good air comes in. There's been uh, studies in Europe that when you breathe good quality air, it actually increases your cognitive brain function. It makes you smarter. They also have done studies in Europe where 
they go into office parks that use passive house principles and use these ERV systems. People don't get sick in the office. The air is constantly being filtered. You're constantly getting fresh air. You compare that directly to a traditional build that has no ERV system and no air exchange besides like an air conditioner blowing. And a lot of people get sick. Just makes more sense to live in these types of buildings. Yeah, so, especially nowadays <laughs> with coronavirus. Exactly. So we've invested in that. Uh, mostly the investment has been in training our designers to know how to build with passive house principles, to train our mechanical engineer on how to do it, and then to train our builders on how to create a tighter seal on the home. Also in New York State, Governor Cuomo's goal is to have use 50% renewable energy at the source by 2030. So that means wind turbines, solar panels, things like that. Half of all of our energy will be renewable. So by lowering our carbon footprint, we're really making a difference with these buildings. Also, we don't use any fossil fuels. So we don't have gas ranges. Gas ranges pollute interior air environment a lot. Mm-hmm. It's also not renewable, not like what we're trying to do by 2030. So everything that we have in the building is electric so that we can tap into that renewable energy in 2030. And also we don't have combustion and we don't have the combustion from your gas range, which is polluting the indoor air environment. You know, I can sell a house and I use waterworks. I use Madeira hardwood floors. I have beautiful, beautiful finishes. People see that. They can tangibly see it and say, yes, I want that. That looks great. This is great design. I want to try to change the market and show people that indoor air environment, that your health is actually the most important thing. Right now, people don't understand the technology that we put into these homes and how it will benefit them more than any other feature in the home. And it's, I don't want it just for myself. I want it for our industry. I really want to change the way that people think about home buying and make that an essential part of the purchase. Yeah. It's early. People aren't educated. They don't know it yet. And that's why I do podcasts like this. Yeah. That's so important and uh, such a good move to make in the industry. And hopefully people will continue to catch on and, and move in that direction as well. Any last comments you want to make? Anything you want to um, get out there before we go for today? Sure. Just very briefly, our uh, hotel project is called the Lake House on Canandaigua in the Finger Lakes. It's a 125-room hotel. It's actually a family project. My grandfather uh, bought the hotel back in 1994, and we ran it as, as a little Sheridan Motor Lodge for many, many years we love the space and we really wanted to bring eyes and minds to the Finger Lakes. The Finger Lakes are some of the most beautiful uh, lakes on this earth. They're absolutely gorgeous, but nobody knows about them. They're in Western New York. People even in New York state in New York city where I live don't know where the Finger Lakes are. So our hotel, the lake house on Canandaigua is going to be an absolutely unbelievable resort with a spa a big event barn, beautiful restaurants, uh, a lakeside bar that I think is the best lakeside bar in America. It's open now and serving a ton of people, even in COVID, we've got good spacing. And 
Also, from an ecological perspective, we use all geothermal heating and cooling. So we dug 500 feet below the Earth's surface. We broke bits at 125 feet that you know created a massive change order. But all of our heating and cooling in seven or eight years will be basically free by tapping into the Earth's core and using geothermal heating and cooling. So we're really proud of that and excited about it. Not a lot of developers do it because... Usually developers in hotels have a timeline of wanting to sell a hotel after five or six years after they've stabilized the asset. We plan on holding this hotel forever and, and letting it, this place be sort of a calling card for the Finger Lakes region. So I, I would like to invite you personally, you got to come to our hotel and, and check it out. Yeah, definitely. Those are some cool projects. We'll have to reconnect and possibly do an episode on some of those. Uh, one of our longer form episode, but thank you so much for joining me, Bill. Uh, thank you. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. And then for our listeners, we'll put some of this information in our show notes. And other than that, we will talk again on Tuesday. Thanks. This show is part of the Gable Media Network. You can check out similar content at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. You can help support what we're doing here by leaving a five-star rating and a review on your preferred podcasting app. It helps others find us, and your support is the only way that this show grows. And don't forget to connect with us through our Facebook community, Instagram, and see the random thoughts and articles that we share on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you again for spending some time with us. Talk soon. Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host Patrick McLaney, FAIA former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise. From 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure 
as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK, the three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm.